This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Christine Courtney, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you, Cheryl. Now, this is um, a really unique situation, so I'm going to tell everybody about it. Christine was born in northeast Victoria in 1954, where she grew up on a cattle property. She studied at ANU, then became a world leader in adventure travel, founding Australian Himalayan expeditions, which offered trekking trips to the Himalayas. I mean, that's a question that I'm really interested in. Why on earth people want to go there, I don't know, in terms of climbing. <laughs> okay. Culturally, I get it. From 2005, she was the partner of iconic Australian author Brace Courtney until his passing in 2012. She was awarded an Order of Australia medal in 2013. Bryce Courtney, storyteller, is a long-awaited memoir of Bryce as told by Christine. I mean, that's unique to be writing the memoir of your partner, isn't it? Yes, and it was so unexpected and it was a book that he never chose to write, even though I think he knew one day someone would write it. People used to come to see Bryce even in his final months begging him to cooperate, but he wasn't interested and he wasn't well enough. He wasn't? No. Do you want to talk about Bryce getting unwell? Well, he was unwell and we didn't realise it was serious. And Bryce wasn't, like some men, dare I say, the best at going along to doctors. He was in the middle of writing Fortune Cookie. He, in fact, walked 140 kilometres down the Savo River in Kenya, as sick as a dog. <gasps> and it wasn't until we came back from Africa, which in itself was very special being there together, even though he wasn't well. But it wasn't until he came back at the end of 2010 that he was diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer, which was a hell of a shock. But being Bryce, he was so brave. He had such personal courage throughout his life. And he said, oh, darling, it's just another round on the grizzly bars, mm -hmm. a reference to him working down in the mines in northern Rhodesia in the mid-50s where he was nearly blown to bits. Mm. So he was sick in Africa, so he probably would have needed to have gone to the doctor then, but like a lot of men, you're right, they don't do anything about it. And his GP was wonderful, but, you know, quite often he was a running mate as well. They'd spend more time talking about the rugby mm. and the cricket scores than mm. going to have a test. Mm. Mm. You know, men do that. I've mm. got these two friends, they're adult men, and when they go out together... I always say, oh, you know, and how's so-and-so? You know, how, how is he? Oh, I don't know. I didn't ask him. Oh, and, and, you know, what are they doing for Christmas? Oh, I don't know. I didn't ask him. <laughs> yeah. And I say, what do you guys talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know why doctors bother with men sometimes, you know. <laughs> and we had a little launch for the family and friends a few weeks ago and half the people there were, you know, medicos and specialists who were all running mates you know, of Bryce. And they just sort of said, well, you know, that was Bryce. He had a wonderful life. 
And at least he got to 79. He was greatly loved. All his dreams had come true. And Christine, you know, just be at peace as he was. Do you want to talk about his last days? Is that comfortable? I mean, we don't have (sighs) to. You know, it's 10 years at 11.30pm on the 22nd of November Mm -hmm. coming Mm up. I promised Bryce that I would bring him home after he had a heart attack with palliative surgery in Canberra. And I did. It was very daunting. But Mm -hmm. as one of his specialists said to me recently, Christine, you can have a good death good death and a bad death. And I said, well, what's good about death? And he said, no, really. He said, it was amazing what you did, managing that, having Bryce at home with family, loved ones coming to see him, surrounded by his pets in his beautiful garden. And he went in peace. Mm. And he he truly did. He Mm. was having little swabs of his favourite French Chablis. He was listening to his favourite song, Summertime, watching our wedding videos, murmuring songs sometimes in Zulu that he probably learned from the African servants in the institutions and hostels that he was in and out of as a child. And when people asked him how he felt about what was coming, he just said, it's all wonderful. I know exactly what's going to happen to me. I'm going to return to the earth. I'll become humus and things will grow above me. And that's how it should be. It's it's all wonderful. Mm. And what about to you? Was that story different to you? Was there at any point that you picked up fear? I think when he first got the diagnosis, it was a hell of a shock. Yeah. Um, I think for anyone, your listeners going through cancer or friends and family, everyone Mm. hopes that they can fight their way out of it. And Bryce was one of those people who always believed he could fight his way out of just about anything. And this time he couldn't. Mm. And that was really very confronting for him, I think. And he was a man who had started writing, as you know, at age 52. He still had five books rattling around in his head. And did he have any regrets? Yes, I think he did. I think ultimately he believed he had worked perhaps too hard and too long. I said to him, do you have any regrets, darling? And he said, I should have spent more time with my grandchildren, my family, I guess. And he said, I wish we'd done that barge trip down the waterways of France. I would have loved that. Mm. Mm. I want to talk about you now. I want to talk about when you first met Bryce. Talk to me about that and how that happened. Uh, After I sold the Adventure Travel Company, I started a marketing and expedition consultancy company and I needed work. So there were a group of advertising people who'd become writers like Derek Hansen and Bryce Courtney. And I was invited along to this group in Bellevue Hill called Writer's Block. And as I went through the door, Bryce came over towards me. I knew it was him. And he said, you must be Christine. And I said, oh, oh, Mr. Courtney, I'm so honoured to meet you. And he said, oh, just call me Bryce. Just think of me as Mr. Tap Tap, the bloke who sits down and applies a lot of bum glue every year to get out a book. And he was jumping around the room, you know, as I write in the book about like a grasshopper on steroids. He was the leader of the pack. But I could sort of see that the writers were there to learn a lot from Bryce and to understand more how to become more successful. But there was tinges of envy as well. I think, as you so rightly said, Bryce had a unique connection with his readers. I think they wanted some of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So I, I want to hear the love story. The love story. Well, um, I had been divorced in July 2005. I was living in Barrow. I 
came back with my sort of tail between my toes to Sydney. And Bryce at that time was, of course, writing another book. And he was living just down the road, not far from his former wife, Benita, whom I was also very good friends with. And he was still very, very supportive of her. And I used to pop over and have a coffee or a glass of wine and watch him um, write this book, which was Whitethorn. After several months, he invited me to go with him to the Melbourne Cup. I thought that was a bit strange, but anyway, I said, oh, okay, because he had broken up with a partner not so long ago. And when we walked into the Qantas Lounge, I thought, "Uh uh-oh, is this what happens when you're on the arm of someone who's famous? You know, all these people are looking at us. And I came home and didn't think anything of it. Then some weeks later, Bryce said to me over lunch on his balcony to the sound of jackhammers on the building site next door, you know, Christine G, you and I would go very well together as a couple and I want you to think about it. Well, mm. you know, well I nearly no fell off the chair. words there, right. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it was very complicated and I really, I really just said darling <laughs> and he called everyone darling. It's, I'm very flattered, you know. But this just can never work. And anyway, you know, I'm not in any emotional state to be in another relationship. But he later said on Family Confidential in 2012 that he told Alex Hamill, his great friend from the advertising years, Mm -hmm. I had loved Christine for a very long time. We were friends first and it was a slow maturation and she finally decided that we could be become something more as friends. But, you know, it wasn't easy. You know, I had to move up to the boondocks of Yarramalong. I'd just come from the country. I still wanted to be in Sydney. We hadn't spent a night together, frankly. You know, I was sure as hell it wouldn't and couldn't work out. And Bryce sat me down one day when I was really not coping with all this. And he said, you know, darling, when you're young, you fall in bed and you fall in love. But when you're older, you fall in like And then you fall in love. Mm. And I knew he was probably right, you know, but I still was holding out. Mm. Beautiful words. Well, he was, how could you resist him, you know? He was so, it's such a zest for life, such an, he was so absorbing our conversations. He was so generous. He was so funny and he believed that anything you could dream up, you could do just like he'd always dreamed to one day be an author. Mm. He never never lost sight of that and he mm. told people that from an early age. He told Ian Finlay in 1955 at the mines in northern Rhodesia, I'm going to be an author in the final phase of my life and what's more, I'm going to be a world famous one. He told mm. all his family that mm. and all his family were storytellers. I discovered that while I was writing the book. Mm. He certainly was a storyteller. Okay, I want to go back to you. Tell me um, about you, about growing up, about your career and how you came to be able to write Bryce's um, biography. I think I had a lot of time to dream as a child because I grew up on a farm and there was nothing to do. Mm. There was no television. There was no social media. Where did you grow up? In Warragee in northeastern Victoria near Beechworth and... We had a cattle farm and my mum and dad were great readers and they had a lot of very eclectic friends from all over the world because dad had been in the Navy and even though he could only listen to books via his talking books because he'd lost his sight as a result of the brutality he suffered on the Thai Burma Railway, 
I always loved the stories. And of course, as a student at school, you know, you're always writing essays and that. And I used to keep a diary um, and then, of course, writing brochures for the Adventure Travel Company and then with my Tell marketing company, that. you know. That, so why Adventure Travel? Because as I said in the intro, mm. I mean, I have never, I completely <laughs> understand when you travel uh, for it the experience and the experience of the country. But, you know, all those people that go climbing and put their lives in danger and, you know, I ran into thin air quite Mm. a few years ago now. I mean, I don't know how many people died on the mountain that day. I can't remember. Too many. Too many. Um, What is it? What makes people want to do that? I mean, it's the same urge, I guess, is jumping out of a plane. I think they are really looking to have a very intimate and intense experience of life. It's not a death wish, it's a life wish. I think often they're rebels, and I think I was a bit of a rebel. My father was a bit of a rebel. You know, he was working in a tannery in Beechworth during the Depression, and at 14 he jumped on a train, lied about his age, joined the Navy and went around the world five times. And I loved travel. I mean... I was, I'm a nomad. I still mm. am. You know, mm. when I had no money as a student, I signed up to go on a trip to China in 1976. I went overseas in 1973, actually, in Southeast Asia, and I was hooked. But there was something about the Himalayas that had always drawn me, those stories of Hillary and Tenzing. And then when I met Karonwe Price in Canberra, he'd just been to Everest Base Camp. And as a way of going back, you know, We decided to run one trip. In the meantime, we fell in love as well. And then one trip became two, three, and then 3,000. So were you a climber as well? I did do some mountaineering, but honestly, I didn't have the nerve for it. It was very exciting, but I'd started to see people either getting gravely injured or not coming back. And I just didn't have the nerve for it. And I realised how committed you had to be and I was committed to growing the business, to exploring more wild and beautiful places. And then I had a child and I just honestly thought it was too selfish to go on with it. Um, I did quite a bit of rock climbing as well, but I still love walking in wild Mm. and beautiful places and I'm still very active on the board of the Australian Himalayan Foundation and we raise funds for a lot of health education, environmental projects throughout the Himalayas. Mm. I mean, the cost of those trips is hugely expensive, isn't it? The mountaineering trips, yes, there are cheaper ways of doing it. I mean, a lot of the more expensive trips get in the media where people pay a hundred grand to climb Everest or to at least have a go, but there are cheaper ways of doing it. Right. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So then later on you met Bryce. Did you 
feel that it was daunting to take on a book like this? I mean, there's so much research that goes into it, right? And so much writing. How did you think about that? How did you structure it? And what was the writing process like for you? You know, Cheryl, in a way, it was like climbing a mountain where I think you are focused on getting to base camp, getting to camp one, camp two, camp three, and finally you make your summit push. And really, I had no intention of writing this book. Julie Berland at Penguin Random House asked me to write this, not too I know long, Julie. as you know very I well. I do. I love Julie. I said, Julie. look, Julie, you know, it's really lovely that you've asked me, but firstly, I'm not a writer, but most importantly, Bryce said he never wanted one. But during the lockdown period in 2020, I thought, well, I can't just watch Netflix. I'll write a little book about the Adventure Travel Company. And then I wrote a chapter about how I first met Bryce. And I was going to put that in my memoir, which is called Annapurna Sunrise, and it's still unwritten, unfinished, I should say. I sent it to a girlfriend and she said, this is really lovely, darling. You should keep writing. And I said, well, you know, Bryce didn't want it. And look, there were decades when we weren't together. And then I found the letters. Talk to me about those. I came back from Canberra in June 2015. Some of the pets had died. I was feeling very lonely. Came back and I was sorting out my stuff in the garage. Found this box of letters. I thought they're probably, well, I actually didn't know what they were. And I started reading them, and they were like a diary of Bryce's life. He'd never mentioned them, never seen them before, 141 of them. And they were from childhood right through every chapter of his life. How extraordinary. Extraordinary. I mean, it was heartbreaking, and it was uplifting all at once, all that he went through. So much worse than I thought, and there were also phases of his life. He'd never talked about conscription. He'd never talked about becoming a learner farmer after leaving school. He never talked about how all so many other family members were storytellers. He never talked about how he nearly died as a baby. But there was also lots of adventures and lots of excitement and fun. And I thought, you know, God, you get that niggly feeling, you know, I can't just put these, close the box I can't walk away. Is it my destiny to write this memoir? And then I thought... Well, your curiosity as well, isn't it? Well, that's right. And I began to think, what perhaps what better way to pay tribute to his life? But I feel still felt a lot of trepidation. Also, you're writing about people who are still alive, who may or may not want this to be done. Mm. There's sensitivities there. But I decided at the outset it was going to be an authentic story. Bryce said in an interview... Whitewashing a family story isn't a story at all. He also said, if you shake any family cupboard, it rattles like hell. But I also wanted it to be gracious and dignified. Mm. Yeah, as respect to the man, I guess, yeah. Mm. Tell me about his immediate family and their response and how did you navigate that? Well, it was sort of one of those funny things where... Because he has children, doesn't he? Oh, yes, yes, he does. And relatives in the USA and in South Africa. His sister, Rosemary, is now 90. Unfortunately, she's got serious memory problems, but fortunately she had come to stay with us in 2006. And I talked and listened to her and Bryce talking a lot about their childhood. Mm. And also she wrote a little memoir that's unpublished, which had a lot of wonderful information about their descendants. And I talked to her children. I talked to Bryce's relatives in South Africa, and we met with them in October 2010. Bryce also, just before he died, got me to write down all this stuff about his childhood. 
But it's funny when you sign a, sign a contract for a book, it seems you're not supposed to talk about the book. And I found that really difficult because I'd say to my wonderful editor, Rachel Scully, whom you would know, yeah. but Rachel, you know, I do need to talk to some people about the book. Like I need to ask Alec Hamill, you know, a yeah. whole lot about the advertising. I need to get the medical stuff right. I need to talk to Bryce's doctors. And for example, you know, I like, you know, a little bit later than I would have hoped. I did talk to, for example, Brett, Bryce's wonderful eldest son, about the book and his grandchildren, particularly Jake, who's about to become a doctor. And I'm pleased to say they've only really just got their hands on the book because it's just come out. Jake has just nearly finished reading it. And he so loves it. He's so proud of it Mm. because he said, you know, Pa died when we were quite young and we didn't get to know him. I, I would so love to have him see what we're doing with his lives and to ask him more about his life. And when I presented the book to Jake and to Ben at this little launch I had, unfortunately Marcus wasn't well and Brett and Anne were there, you know, and it was so special to see them feeling what that this is who I wrote the book for mm. and, you know, for Bryce's readers. And, you know, I actually felt quite relaxed when I was writing the book as well because before I had a publisher in Penguin Random House, I wasn't going to get it published. I thought, I'll just write it. I'll go to Officeworks. I'll print 50 copies. I'll give them to the grandchildren. I'll send it to the family. Mm-hmm. And I'll forget about it. Mm-hmm. I was too scared to have it published. Yeah, it was in memory of him. But once I got a publisher, you know, sort of the panic set in because firstly I thought, oh, God, it's with Penguin Random House. I better, this has got to be good. <laughs> I think, and, you know, I've spoken to a lot of authors who've written memoirs about people that have, you know, recently died and mm. like like you were just saying where there are still lots of living people and I think about that with me I, I just if I ever wrote something then you know I've got a family I've got sisters I've got a brother and they were to read it I wonder how accurate memory is you know do we get it right every time talk to me about that were you worried about that I was I think when you hear any ch- children from the same family's perspective on their childhood yeah it's different Bryce and Rosemary had a fundamentally different take on their upbringing and on their mother. Mm. And Bryce addressed this very forcefully with her in 2008. He'd had enough, frankly. Mm. He loved his mother. He, in the end, came to really totally embrace the fact she'd been to Helen back, a fallen woman, kids out of wedlock, during the Depression, coming into the Second World War, during apartheid, penniless, mental health problems. However... She became a charismatic Christian. He felt she changed after that. He was abandoned to institutions a lot of the time. He felt an ambivalence towards her, whereas Rosemary thought she was a saint. Mm. She could do no wrong, really. Mm. And I think, you know, that was just a classic case of what you're talking about. Mm. Oh, I could see that in our family. Mm. You know, and mm. we all have different memories of growing up. Yes. And I, I mean, we were immigrants, you know, mm. my parents were Lebanese Australian mm. and, uh, you know, it was hard. It was yes. really hard. We lived in one room for a time. Goodness me. But I had fond memories of that. Yes. You know, whereas not all my family have had fond memories of that. Yes. I mean, I remember doing really fun things and I don't mm. remember that it was hard, you know. No, you know, like Bryce, you know, I think you're seeing that it enriched your life. He, There's a story in the book about when one Christmas... Rosemary wrapped up a brick in pink in yellow paper so that he have something to open on Christmas Day. And he said to Peter Thompson in 2006 on Talking Heads, look, if I'd had a normal, nice, middle-class family, I wouldn't have had all this 
great material for my books. Mm. In other ways, though, these these things can leave scars. And oh, it's hard, you. And you know, Bryce had his um, had his demons, like we all mm. do, deep down. Mm. And I think he buried a lot of them. Although I think he also put a lot more of himself into his books than I ever realised. And when I reread them after reading the letters, and as he always said, look, we always put something of ourselves into our writing, whether we're writing fiction Absolutely. or non-fiction, yeah. especially Whitethorn, yeah, which yeah. he said was his most autobiographical work. But even the perception, like, you know, when you talk about fiction, you know, talking about mm. a fiction book, those characters come out of you. Exactly. You know, I mean, and so even if they're starkly different and you're not the serial killer, mm. you are directing that serial killer in your mind in terms of developing a personality, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And you can only do that with what you know. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But I think Bryce felt fiction was safe. Mm. It was a sanctuary. Mm. His mind, his imagination it's more forgiving, I could guess. roam free. Yeah. Yes. And you can do what you like. I mean, his mother and sister had some misgivings about the power of one. They were very proud of him. But I think they felt that he brought some shame on the family and they didn't want all of that coming out. And they kept saying, is is the mother Patty? And he'd mm. say, mother, I keep telling you it's a novel. But they never believed it and they never, I think, quite fully forgave him. Mm. So he, we don't have time to go through um, mm. all his career, but that's why you need to buy the book and read it. I want to start from when he published his first book. Talk to me about that and how that came about. Look, there are many different versions of how that came about. In the end, I relied a lot on Bryce's voice and I've tried to keep his voice throughout the book with extracts from the letters. He did an interview with Diana Rich at the National Library where he told the story about how everyone knows he thought it was a practice book. He used it as a doorstop and then he eventually found an agent uh, in Jill Hickson and then it was picked up actually by someone in London that she was involved with. Then it was taken to New York and an offer was made, which to Jill's horror, Bryce rejected. And then the next day it, it was auctioned for a million dollars and the rest... You know, it's his history. history. But Bryce always thought he was very lucky. Yeah. Uh, that his book, The Tadpole Angel, later called The Power of One, ever got up. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, I just remember being around for that. Uh, he was, he was a remarkable storyteller. And I just want to talk a little bit about, because he was around for all my book selling days. Mm. So my entire career, right? Um, mm. And I remember very, very clearly that he would just pop into a bookstore unannounced and talk to the booksellers and if there were readers there, sign books. Mm. I'd not seen that at that time, mm. you know. He was very, uh, we, we mentioned this earlier, very, very connected to readers mm. in a way that I hadn't seen it. Mm. But one time I was at the New, I don't know if I've told you this, Christine, I was at the New South Wales Art Gallery and he was, he was there too at a table having a meal, I think, with his wife mm. at the time. And I was with someone, I, I can't remember who, and I said, oh, that's Bryce Courtney. And my friend said, do you know him? I said, well, he, I have met him a few times because being a bookseller, I'd come yes, across him. Yes, of drives. course. And are you going to go and say hi? No, no, I'm not going to go and say hi. And do you know what? He stood up and he came over and he said hello. <laughs> that's so Bryce. It's just extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? He loved people, you know, and he always felt very grateful, you know, that people bought his books. And I think also 
by meeting his readers, he knew them. He knew mm. what they had for breakfast. Because he knew it was, was pre-social media, right, where you didn't oh, have totally. the connection with readers like he did. That's right. But, you know, he also, as you know, changed the way publishers went about their business by doing what he did. And he used to say the best advertising for any book is two men or women talking about it over the back fence. And he, whilst he respected... Word of mouth. Word of mouth. He loved the independent bookstores. He thought books should be accessible, affordable, and should be where people went about their daily lives. Mm. Mm. I mean, Big W, as you probably know. He wasn't a snob. He wasn't a snob. He wrote for his readers, not as he called it, the literary glitterati, although, you know, a lot of them did respect him and love him, but sometimes it did did irk, you know, and I can understand that. And sometimes when I look at his writing, I think, gosh, darling, you had such a gift, you know. There's a poetic luminosity to some of his writing, not to all of it. He wasn't Mm. always writing at his best. And I just think even though he taught writing and loved doing that and championing new writers, he did. Bryce he was did a that. born storyteller. He yeah. did that right up to his yeah. final months. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was his approach to writing, was it disciplined? Was it that it was a nine-to-five gig? Would he get up in the, when he was writing a book? How would he approach that project? He was very disciplined and he was very hardwired to that schedule that you've just described. But, you know, Rachel told me he was one of these writers that, where there was no sort of map of where the book was going. He was delivering books. So he was a pantser. That's what they call that. It's, and it's very common. Lots of writers take that approach. I'm so glad you've told me because that's how Bryce used to drive his editors mad. You know, like Rachel Scully would say, now, Bryce, where is this book going so that we can be prepared? And he'd say, well, sorry, Rachel, I don't know where it's going. And, you know, even when I was writing the book... I was writing it chapter by chapter, but I was researching and writing at the same time. I mean, my house was just covered in post-it notes, you know, books by the by the bed, writing stuff day and night and like a mad woman, you know, 12, 14 hours a day to get it done. And I didn't really know where it was going either because when I'd find more research, I think, oh, gosh, I can do a whole chapter on that. Like when we went to Israel, that wasn't supposed to be a chapter. It became the promised land. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, I, I think writing for me just seems so incredibly difficult, but I love hearing people's stories about it. But, um, you know, it's very creative and gratifying and stimulating yeah. and intense. And when it's finished, I was relieved, but it's also an anticlimax because it's done. Even when I picked up the book, I was so emotional and so excited and so it felt surreal that it was my my book. You know, I've written a book. In other ways, I started to feel myself almost detaching from it, just as Bryce did, because the journey was what was it, it was all about. And now I'm, you know, packing up books into envelopes and that. Mm. Like it's, it's not a can of baked beans, but you know what I mean? It's mm. sort of like Mm-mm. the journey is coming to an end. And I can mm. hear Bryce saying, now, darling, you've written this beautiful book. It's compelling. Mm. I can't put it down. I'm so amazed. Thank you. But now you put it on the bookshelf. And you get on with your life. Mm. Charlotte Wood, the Australian fiction writer, lovely writer, she she said to me, I've heard it since, but she said to me, once that book is finished and it mm. goes out, it belongs to the reader. It doesn't belong to Beautifully her Beautifully said. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that lovely? Christine, we're out of time. It's just been the most wonderful conversation. The book is called Bryce Courtney, Storyteller. Thank you so much. It's been an honour to talk with you, Cheryl. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. 
Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.